Hi, and welcome to the No IT Podcast, the place where you get to know IT so you can own IT. My name is Bryant Brackett, and I am here to bring you the most up-to-date news and information in the IT network and cybersecurity space. So if it touches your network, we're going to talk about it. Today, I have with me retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Terry McGraw, who was responsible for leading our nation's cybersecurity task force, fighting off threats from some of our nation's biggest enemies. Today, he is the president of government sales for PCmatic, which is a cybersecurity software that alerts an end user to the presence of a hacker sitting on their network. It also has a secured operations center that logs in and fights off those attacks within real time and in turn protecting your business and your data. He has a tremendous amount of experience, which he's going to share with us. He's going to give us some practical steps that we can take to better prepare ourselves for an attack. Because as he says, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And, you know, generally, I think that you guys are going to walk away from this really impressed and have a lot of uh, good information to take back to your IT teams. If you have a comment, please feel free to leave it. Um, Please feel free to let us know and reach out to us. Um, LinkedIn is my best place to to reach me, as as it is Terry's. And you can find us both at linkedin.com slash Bryant Brackett or slash Terry McGraw. At the same time, I'd like you to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast so that I can continue bringing you more of these episodes. Have a great day and enjoy the show. All right. So we are live. I have Lieutenant Colonel Terry McGraw with me today who is the president of federal sales for PCmatic. Um, His specialty and area of expertise is the cybersecurity industry. He has a tremendous amount of experience, and I am so excited to to have this conversation with him and just kind of be able to pick the brain of somebody who has really been on the front lines of cyber attacks and fought against them as uh, as they have come up. So Terry, thank you so much for, for taking the time out today. No, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's always uh, fun to talk about something I'm passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. I want to start off with you and kind of how, how you got here. Um, you know, has, has cybersecurity or IT been something that you were interested in from, you know, childhood or is it something that you, that your journey kind of took you on uh, in the army? No, I mean, so the answer is the latter. Um, I did not get into um, to cybersecurity until much later in life. Um, the first half of my career was was as a combat arms soldier. Um, I, I got commissioned in the Army, and, and as a major, uh, the Army sent me to the, uh, well, I got a master's degree in com, uh, computer science, and then, then they sent me to the telecom systems engineering course. Uh, and then from there, I went into the Army's cyber warfare uh, mechanisms, and I worked for n- several of the uh, Army's agencies as one of the intelligence agencies as well. Um, and so I, I think I spent probably the last 10 years of my military career uh, in counterintelligence cyber operations. Um, and then, of course, I went to work for Dell Securex for six years and some change, um, running their cyber threat analysis centers and their security operations centers. Uh, globally. Um, and now I'm with PC Matic and their federal sales. Nice. The, you know, a lot of our listeners aren't, aren't familiar or don't come from that technical background. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about today and kind of have you describe for us was what, what happens, one, what happens when you are attacked? How do you, how are you, how can you tell? Um, and two, what is it, what's going on on the other end um, for the incident response, whether that's, you know, sure. internal or, you know, a lot of our custom, a lot of our people don't have internal teams that respond to cyber threats, but like a SOC environment, what is that, that process like? So it varies from, from, uh, you know, entity to entity. So if, uh, let me start by saying that if in, in order to truly defend your networks well if you were going to go out and let's say create a security operations center so 
from the government's perspective, cyber warfare is a, is a warfighting domain. I mean, it's, it's nation state espionage. It can be cyber kinetic activity, as we saw with um, the Stuxnet and, and a few other the weaponized codes. So, so there is a, um, a cyber as a warfare um, and a warfighting domain on one hand. In business, it's a matter of business risk reduction. Um, at the end of the day, you know, our, our capitalist environment needs a secure environment to operate freely because it's, you know, no one, no one's, oh, well, excuse me, let me rephrase that. There are companies that, that make cyber security their, their bread and butter, but it's because other entities don't, right? So, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, businesses need business-to-business connectivity. They need to connect to the internet and they want to run their business. They don't want to worry about uh, the attack surface that they're, they're operating in. Um, at least that's not their primary concern. And at the end of the day, for cyber warfare or cyber defender, uh, it's really about protecting people. You know, the, 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 at the end of the day, I've spent my whole life um, trying to defend others who couldn't defend themselves. And, and I truly think that the spirit of most folks that get into this environment is, is about defending other people. Um, the folks that live and breathe in, in cybersecurity have a set of esoteric skills that is not easily replicated. And that's why there's a, a dearth, um, uh, excuse me, there's a, there's a deficit of, of skilled folks in, in the cybersecurity industry. So having said that, what do you need to do or what does a cyber attack feel like? So before you know what a cyber attack feels like, you got to know kind of what normal feels like. Um, if I were going, if I, if I walked into your company and I said, look, um, Ryan, if you want to defend your environment well, you're going to need to understand your environment well first. Um, you know, when I worked at one of the agency, the intelligence agencies, they, they had something called the diamond model. And the diamond model was used for threat attribution. So at the top of the diamond was the adversary, you know, that you can attribute malicious activity to. On one corner of that other, you know, points of the diamond was the infrastructure that the adversary used and and affected on the other side is the tactics techniques and procedures that that adversary used to conduct the attack and at the bottom of that diamond point is the victim and if you get three of those four we we talk about how you could do attributions right so i if i know generally speaking the ttps of of the adversary group and i know what infrastructure they're leveraging and i know who they're targeting i generally can get a pretty good idea of, of who the adversary and I thought that was a really uh, interesting and novel approach to how you would do attribution. But, but if you're defending a network, it's, it's entirely insufficient to enumerate the environment you're looking at, right? So that's the adversary group, like who's doing this to me? But you have the same set of problems for your own infrastructure, right? I mean, so if, if you're the, the guy or gal running your, your top level domain or your routing infrastructure, your server infrastructure misconfigures an access control list, um, and you conduct a denial of service on yourself, it has the same operational impact, right? You, you cannot conduct business. The question becomes, do you have enough fidelity to know was that an adversary or was that yourself, right? And so what we've seen in business, especially as the businesses get larger, finance drives a wedge between security personnel and IT operations, network operations. And, and it's why, because one's a capability expense and one's an operating expense, right? And so you see this natural delineation that happens based on finance. Um, and as a, as, a, as a consequence, your your IT operations and your security personnel become customers of one another. Like there's a ticket exchange. Like, so if, if something's happening on my environment and I have telemetry that's telling me something's wrong in my environment, well, I submit a ticket to the IT ops because I got to figure out, well, was it a change management problem? What, you know, is there a, a network outage? Is there a health issue? Uh, and conversely, if I need to, hey, look, you are being schlacked by, by I don't know, let's just say so some kind of, uh, you know, IP scanner and it's, it's taking down your environment. Mm -hmm. Well, now you generate as a security personnel a ticket to your network operations and they do a configuration change, right? So, so there's, there's a, a, a give and take that happens naturally. Instead of having a singular organization that, that has full awareness of the network operations and full awareness of the adversaries against you, you get this business process disconnect that, that we introduce into businesses. And it's, it's, uh, it's sad because it makes our network operations folks and our cyber defenders um, competitors of one another. 
an interesting a byproduct of this too, especially when you in, introduce third-party IT operations, like you've outsourced something. Your outsourcing folks um, are usually billed based on ticket count, right? Ticket time. How many people did I help today? Well, if you're a cyber defender, the last thing on earth you want is a whole bunch of, of, of tickets because it says I'm not defending very well, right? Uh, there's something affecting the inside of my environment. I had to go remediate something. So what? So now you have this, this interesting thing where you're measuring the two halves of, of your whole in, in a diametrically opposed way, right? I'm, I'm measuring my people who are conducting the network operations based on ticket volume, and the people who are defending it are based on a low volume. I want, I want that to be low. I want to defend my environment. So the, the returns on investment measurements are, are different as well. So, so what I say, what I, the reason I get that background is there's really three diamonds, if you will, in the, in, the, in the model. So there's the threat view, which is that traditional attribution, like who's doing this to me? Like what are they doing and who's, who's doing it to me? There's also that view of yourself, know thyself, right? Um, you know, it's Sun Tzu, it's, it's you know, at, at the end of the day, it's I need to understand myself and intimately, I need to know the assets of my environment, I need to know how my configuration, I need to know the physical and logical topologies in the application array in my environment. Um, and that brings me to the third and one of the most critical and often you know lack of forethought goes into the mission version of what i do as a business like it's not only what is core to me it, it, and what i need to do to just perform business that is important that is your cyber key terrain that is you know the things that i must defend the keys to my kingdom but it's also in the business relationships. What are my B2B connectivity, both as a vector and as a potential vector into one of my business partners, right? If I'm compromised, who else does that affect? And does my business relationships affect my overall cyber posture? So what does it feel like if I'm under attack? Well, the, first, the reason I gave you that whole prelude was, first, you got to understand, did you do it to yourself or is somebody else doing this to you? Yeah. Right. So, so knowing yourself and then knowing your, you know, and can you detect the adversary? So let's talk about that, you know, the detection of the adversary. <clears throat> There's the sensing technologies. And what I mean by sensing technologies, those things that determine malicious activities going on, your, your network telemetry is through an IPS IDS firewall, you know, router NetFlow. Um, at the end point, your telemetry or agents or operating system or file structures, something that's on the end point that provides telemetry and can be aggregated to determine what's malicious behavior. So that's, that's all your sensing technologies. So once you have the, the, the correct sensing technologies, and I would argue that, you know, um, you, there's a different type of sensing um, security efficacy for where it sits in your architecture you know, for cloud versus your network perimeter, which is cold, you know, quickly evaporating to your endpoint, um, even to the network layer itself. Um, and then you move um, further on into the sense making. So I've got all of this telemetry. Do I know what any of that is telling me? So then, you know, that's where your, your, your sims come into play. It's where your human beings come into play. Because after I do the sense making, I've determined something bad's happening. Now I have to decide something. What do I go do about it, right? So, and, and what actions are appropriate for the threat at hand? And so, and, and then, of course, then, the, then I've decided to do something. Now I've got to go remediate. So those phases, you, 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 you have to look at it architecturally. You have to look at it um, business process-wise. And you have to look at it as, as far as people. Um, it's, it's a multi-layered onion. So what does it feel like when you're getting attacked? Unfortunately, depending on your sensing technologies and the skill sets of your people, it may not be apparent that you're under attack until nothing's working, right? Um, right. People will come in and start calling the help desk. Hey, man. I get this weird message on my endpoint when I try to log in. Um, it's saying to contact this and you know with Bitcoin. I mean, um, it says, "Hey, I'm being held by ransom," or "Hey, I, I couldn't log into my system," um, or "Hey, I, I can't connect to anything. What's the deal?" So, generally speaking, it will start with help desk. Like your users will start to complain that there's something there's something amiss. Yeah. Um, on the higher, more sophisticated end, if you have a you know a security operations center, you've employed. Um, an MSSP who are further upstream or who are monitoring your network infrastructure, they may tell you, 
because um, they're looking at and making sense making. They're doing the sense making of your environment to determine if anything malicious is happening to you before your users know. And that's of course the optimal solution is if you if your if your sensing array is helping determine that there's something amiss before you feel that operational impact. And then of course, um, God forbid you go through all that. Now you are under attack. <clears throat> well, now it's I have some decisions to make. Um, and this is where. This is where analog meets digital. And it's, it's one of the, the, the fewest and, and least thought out things of the network defender. It, it's, it's sad, I go into business after business and, we, you know, and I've done incident response engagements as an incident response commander. I've advised companies on building security operations centers. So, so I'll, I'll pose an, uh, a question. If you are hit by commoditized ransomware, let's just say it's commoditized. They drive by shooting, you got schlacked, you left your 3389 RDP port open, you got hammered. And now your environment is getting locked up in a matter of minutes. Um, so the damage is done. Now what do I do? So there are some questions. Do I pay the ransom? So that's a question you need to ask way before it happens. It's like there's legal ramifications, there's stakeholder ramifications, there's credibility ramifications. There's a, a, a suite of things. You don't need to wait for that bad day to happen to think through what that bad day looks like, right? I mean, in fact, there's a whole series of things you should be thinking through. Um, one of the, the least thought through things is if the infrastructure I have is locked up and all the knowledge that I have of my own infrastructure is actually on the infrastructure. So what's my network topologies? What was our network diagrams? What do I know about my vendors, my software? What software version am I running? Who are the vendors? What's the points of contact? When's my contract? Can I, you know, what are the parameters of the software use? You know, now that it's locked up and I got to re-image everything, do I have to pay for everything new? <clears throat> Those are all analog questions. In fact, Everyone puts that in their digital environment. It's on someone's desktop. It's on a server somewhere. It's, you know, it's on a backup drive. But at the end of the day, if all of that infrastructure is locked up, then what? Like, so I, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend, you know, in that, in that, that, and you're not thinking, well, let me put it that way. Everyone will think through this differently. Everyone's fear and panic thresholds will be different. But at the end of the day, everyone involved is going to be under stress. And after you've been locked up with, you know, ransomware <clears throat> is not the time to go do discovery learning on my mission critical systems. Right. What are the mission critical systems? Where are they running physically and logically? Are they on-prem, are they in a cloud, are they in a data center? Um, what server hosts what application? Now, I mean, literally, you might have to re-engineer your network by inference, like I'm going to get on appliances, see what they're connected to and see if I can remap my network. Right. Cause now I got to figure out what I got to go recover. Right. So all of this stuff could be printed and, and kept in a three ring binder inside your operation center, inside of somewhere business critical. And then the, the other piece of that, of, of the mission awareness is not only what's critical to me, what's critical to my business, but all of the information I need to reconstitute my environment. There's also who needs to know. Who are the decision makers? Right. Where, where are the stakeholders involved? And not only what, who's got to help me clean this mess up, but but who needs to know about the mess? Right. Who can give me authority to pay the ransom? Who gives me? Who tells? You know, who handles the media? Like if this came on the six o'clock news, you know, think right. Equifax. Like who answers the mail on that? Who prepares that? Where's my inside and outside counsel? Where's my media relations people? Where's my critical situation folks? All of those things as a cyber defender need must absolutely without reservation must be thought of worked through and mapped out before this happened. It's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, whether it be someone clicks on something stupid, whether it be a deliberate attack, whether it be just accidental, where it be drive by it, Most folks have, even if you've, successfully thwarted the attack because you had an IPS or something or, or endpoint telemetry that blocked it, you got attacked, yeah. right? And so at the end of the day, um, you, you, you're continually day in and day out do dodging a bullet and your business continues to win happily ever after. So oh, another part, I'm sorry, I'm doing a lot of talking. I apologize, Brian. No, go ahead. Um, <laughs> a last portion of, of, of this is when you're looking at your infrastructure is like, 
what are the second and third order effects of that attack? And I mean this very deliberately. Like if I have a manufacturing plant and I have control systems, not OT, but, uh, but ICS that's operating on a TCP IP network and those control systems, like think watershed in a city. Watershed has to determine, you know, report levels to the EPA, has to regulate the, the water levels. There's a whole critical infrastructure that has to report back on TCP IP networks. Manufacturing base, I have an entire assembly line whose production is controlled by TCP IP and IP controlled systems. Why do I say that? Well, it, it turns out in a, in a, there's a particular food company that, that was, was attacked with ransomware, locked up their their manufacturing plant. Um, um, nougat for candy bars apparently when it you know is shut down congeals in all of the extruders that that it sits in. Now think about that. I used to have this this mushy stuff flowing through extruders. It was being put into candy bars um, and it's doing this you know a, a thousand times a minute or some other thing you know squirting out nougats whatever the candy bar it's going to make. Think about this. Now it stops and all that stuff congeals in my infrastructure and it doesn't reliquify, right? That's why you buy it. Once you squirt it into a candy bar and you ship it off to a store, that nougat doesn't, you know, truly liquefy again, right? It, it goes in it solidifies and that's its new state. Yeah. Um, so now I have an entirely useful, useless manufacturing thing full of goo. It's full of solid chunks of stuff that now I've got to go figure out how to undo. I talk to a manufacturing plant who, and I use that as an analogy and there, and, and the, and the foreman of the plant was like, it got this ghostly look on the face and said, crap. And I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, if our extruders and their extruders pumped out, you know, some kind of vinyl or PVC or something to make uh, whatever manufacturing they made, um, it gives off a noxious gas, toxic, right? So now, now I've got a, a shop floor that's got, you know, exhaust, you know, something that was normally vented and, you know, controlled and decomposed by an environmental control system is now offline. So I literally have toxic gas leaking out into my shop floor. And then, oh, by the way, by extension, my neighborhood. Um, that's a really bad day. The time to understand that and learn that is not during a cyber attack. I mean, you want to add insult to injury, God forbid you got toxic gas leaking out into the public, much less your own manufacturing plant, as a, as a result of a, of a ransomware attack, right? I mean, those, the time to think through this is well, well before the attack. So, uh, um, yes, all of these things are things that you're going to go through if you are attacked, but, but thinking through this as the worst possible day um, is much more important ahead of when you actually get attacked because thinking through this stuff in heuristically, you know, discovery learning, like, oh my God, I can't believe this just happened. Um, those are not really, really great moments in your personal history, much less your professional history as, as you go through them. So, so reacting to the cyber event, in my opinion, is much better dealt with as a practical exercise before you ever have it happen. And that's what do I know? Well, can I sense the, the adversary? Do I know myself? Do I know what's critical about my business? Do I know what I'm connected to as far as business to business relationships? And I thought through all the process and connective tissue of all of that uh, to understand what my worst day feels like. Because um, your worst day, it, I, I'm telling you, and unfortunately, time and time again, um, the cybersecurity staff figures this stuff out on the fly as it's happening and that's never a good thing. So I'm, I'm passionate about trying to think through these things ahead of time. And, and building a security operations center um, and having the right telemetry, having the right preventative technologies is absolutely just as critical to all of that up front. Yeah, well, absolutely. And there's been, there have been times where I've walked into in, into a meeting and there's been a finance person at the table and an operations person at the table. And you can tell that there's, there's tension and they're, they're warring back and forth because operations understands that they need this in order for them to do their jobs more efficiently. But finance doesn't want to shell out the cash necessary to do it properly, right? So, but I would imagine that with both people having their worst days ever, finance is going to be much is going to have a much harder time and feel a certain type of way about spending five ten million dollars to unlock their system from a ransomware attack than it would be to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars to secure it on the front end and just prevent it altogether right 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet, right? And so, and, and your CFOs of the world will say, a lot of that looks and smells duplicative. <clears throat> and and they're, not, they're not incorrect in some of that. You know, I, I would say that we make the finance guys out to be the bad guy because it's easy to target them. You know, hey, they're making me ch choose, you know, between this, that, and I need both. <clears throat> but oftentimes, we're losing on the basics, basic blocking and tackling, you know, leaving an RDP open, not, you know, or responding to the fish drive-by web proxy, not having multi-factor authentication, not segmenting your network, right? I mean, the, the, unfortunately, these are things that don't require a tremendous amount of investment to do well. I mean, I, I work for a company called PCMatic. PCMatic provides an a application um, whitelisting solution um, that's highly effective and it's very inexpensive, right? I mean, and it, it has all kinds of preventative capabilities at a super low price point. Uh, and, and so the question is, is some, some of it I actually blame a lot for two things. Number one, do our security folks actually really understand the security architecture they're defending? Are they as skilled as they, they, they claim to? Um, be, have you done all the basics blocking tackling first? It's really easy to blame, oh, it was advanced tradecraft. Yeah. Not so much. The vast majority of stuff we see is, is commoditized e-crime. So, mm -hmm. so we, we, there is blame, you know, when, when, when I'm being forced by CFO to justify costs, um, I actually think that's a pretty good drill because no one can protect everything. You know, one of the things we used to say in the Army, you know, Murphy's Laws of Combat, <clears throat> you know, one of my favorites was, remember, your weapon is made by the lowest bidder. But the other one was, <laughs> you know, if, if, if your defense is so good that the adversary can't get in, you can't get out, right? And so that's networks, right? I mean, yeah. you, you must operate. So, so you, you can't make yourself impenetrable. What, what, what we fail to do as defenders is clearly identify, enumerate, and then categorize the risk. Like knowing that I can't protect everything, when the CFO asks me to choose, at least I have an answer to say, here's my risk probability and impact matrices that says, these are the things that get me to the 90% threshold. These 10% things are beyond the control. And I can probably get you to 95% if you bought, bought me this extra widget. But in, in absence of that, for advanced tradecraft using fileless attacks um, in a low and slow attack, you know, introduced via surreptitious means, you know, by access to my devices, I'm not going to have an answer to that. Well, and then, then your leadership of the company say, well, the chances of that are so remote in my vertical market, in my, my configuration, I will assume that risk. I will buy a cybersecurity policy that says in the worst, if that should happen, I've got coverage to help me reconstitute, right? And so, so the security professional, I don't think should, uh, should give themselves an easy out. Um, by talk, you know, look, we're in the we're in business to be in business, and the CFO and finance is important. They're the ones that are keeping us honest. Um, and I think, truly speaking, if 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 all we were seeing, you know, when you looked at the threat landscape and all the things that were successful, if all you saw was advanced tradecraft and nation state actors and it's really really sophisticated e crime, I would say, man, you you know, we are not doing a good job with with spending the money. But the fact of the matter is 83, 85% of what we see that schlacking people is commoditized, which means it, you know, it was easily preventable with the right architecture. And so if that's the case, I can't blame CFOs for that. I, I blame network architects, engineers, and cyber defense people. Uh, so. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense because you're, you're a business owner that does, that does what you do. You make basketballs for you know, lack of a better example you're focused on making the best basketballs that you can. You're not focused on being an IT person and super technical, but you're also trusting your IT team to do the right thing and make sure that everything that they're, that they're doing is up to, up to par with, you know, what the, what the current environment is. The struggle that I think a lot of these business owners are, have is the, is the amount of turnover in the, in IT departments, oh, which yeah. go, going back to your, to your statement about the about analog, you know, being being better to have a network plan and protocol in place than keeping it on the digital digital end, is that no matter what turnover of your IT department, 
or your IT guy, somebody's always going to be able to grab that binder. Even if they're not a technical person, they're going to be able to go to that binder and follow step A to Z and say, okay, how do we fix this? Whether that be you as the owner or that be in a third party, third party new IT guy, right? And I think a lot of a lot of things from my experience that I've I've seen is that there isn't a there isn't a whole lot of planning for that um, that turnover, right? They we all expect we love our our IT people. We get to know them, you know, on a personal basis, and you don't really want them to ever leave. But the fact is, is that people find better opportunities than they do leave, and then you're you're left you know, trying to pick up the pieces because most of the time I haven't experienced a situation where people do give you a solid notice. It's, I have this opportunity. It starts on Monday. Thank you. And see you later. But it's, you know, to protect yourself, it, you, there needs to, you know, there needs to be a stronger, a stronger planning mechanism earlier on in the process. Yeah, you should have a succession plan. It's going to happen. And most of the, you know, and it's not at the very, very high end of the maturity and budget scale, you know, the big, big financial institution, et cetera, who have a lot of money to build a sock. You know, they even have a succession plan. But let's move down to maturity scale and budget. You probably have one to four people. Yeah. Like they're critical people now, right? And so if they roll off, I now have a gap or I don't even think about it, um, which is even worse. And so you're absolutely right. It, it, and as you look at that array, you also have disparity in skill sets between new people, old people, you know, uh, uh, or the turnover that is going to be a ramping up period. You never know when your worst day is going to going to happen. And an interesting thing I, I suggested to a, a, a municipality, we often do pen testing, external pen testing. And pen testing, you know, you, you, it means different things to different people, right? You know, <clears throat> there's the advanced adversary guys that will try to pick a lock, get in your environment, get physical access to a box. There's guys that will just conduct a, you know, external scan against your environment. Uh, you know, there'll be people who, you know, look at, at, at uh, you know, what, what's leaked out in the, in the, in, you know, the paste bins of the world, et cetera. So, you know, you, you, you can have a suite of those things that operate pe- in the world of pen testing. Um, and we tend to look at those things as technical, like I'm, I'm testing my environment. If, if I were a cyber leader, I would look at my, you know, what did the pen test enumerate, but it also should indicate the skill set of your people. If, for example, I can get into your Active Directory admin account by guessing a password, um, that says something about the skill set of the folks that are controlling your network, correct? Yes, if, if I have unpatched a, a big footprint in my environment, that also says something about the maturity of my process and the people that are working. And so, so don't look at pen testing just to see what's wrong with my infrastructure. Use it as a way to also like get an asthma check. Like you said, most, most management or, you know, we all have a finance person at the table, risk person at the table, and there's nothing wrong. Those are critical people to have in the business but probably not able to assess is my active directory configured correctly. Right. Right. Um, So if, you know, how am I as a business owner or business stakeholder ensuring that my IT staff, my security staff have the requisite skills um, to actually do this well. And and one of the ways you can actually do that is, you know, you do a pen test, you have a third party, do a pen test, don't do it yourself, have a third party do it. Um, And whether it's super, you know, in, in, in depth or even a cursory, you know, external pen test, it should start to indicate where you where you are in a maturity model for both your infrastructure and your people. And so, so you're absolutely right. Don't forget the people in this equation. They they're going to get turned over. God forbid anybody should you know get hit by a bus or come down with COVID for weeks or you know. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you have to plan for your worst day, and that includes the mechanism to recover if your critical staff is no longer there. Now, one that that led me to a train of thought on on training. Let's let's talk. Let's say you have multiple. I you have a t, an IT team with multiple multiple people. One one obviously leader of that team. How do you keep them greased up and trained and kind of on their toes to to respond to these attacks? Because you know the you know professional sports, NFL, whatever they they practice every day, right? A lot of IT people are are focused on the day to day 
level one type password, you know, reset support stuff that is typical of an IT person. But how do you stay on the ball with those, with the more complicated threats when it is time, it is your time to shine and, you know, save the business, so to speak. Understand what you're hiring for first. So, so number, I laugh because a, a, <clears throat> proctologist and a neurosurgeon are both doctors, but you don't want them doing a high five in surgery, right? I mean, right. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a different <laughs> skill set, right? So at, at the end of the day, you have network operators, you have help desk folks, and then you have cybersecurity, you know, endpoint forensic people, you have incident responders. These are, these are, these are maturity journeys that people go on. And so understand what you're hiring for. Am I hiring for an IT help desk person or am I hiring for an incident responder or am I hiring for somebody who do, do event triage and incident response, right? So, so number one, first understand what, what I'm hiring for. Then B, how do I make sure I hire the right person, right? So, so, so a few things. Um, I, I know I'm going to draw a flag for this, but you know, a friend of mine said it's not really a, a, a tr strategic thought piece unless 40% of the people disagree with you. I'm actually not a big advocate of, of, of degrees of four-year degrees in the space. If you got one, that's great. If you went to an NSA certified you know, center of excellence, you know, school, um, you know, Auburn, you know, you, the Carnegie Mellon, those are great. They're great, great programs. But the vast majority of, of hands-on practical work didn't come out of a four-year degree. It, it came with people doing it. Um, and, and, and a lot of folks self-learn. I'm a huge believer. I, I, I actually prefer certifications over degrees but that's not a panacea either, right? That's not a guarantee. Um, right. So the way I always did it when I, I hired and my team hired, <clears throat> we did a tech screen. Like, you know, we, we figured out what we're hiring for, right? And, and then you figure out what's a good multiplication you know, screening for that. Make, you know, here's 25 questions, you know, go through it and answer these questions. Um, that just makes sure that, you know, you, you have someone that has general knowledge of the subject and there's ways to make sure they're not cheating on that. But at, but at the end of the day, but that's not a, th you know, that's just to weed out the people who have, you know, I'm really a truck driver, but I said I'm a cyber person and I submitted a resume and, you know, they, they really don't even know what a common port is. Right. So right. I mean, at the end of the day, that's just a way to weed out the people who probably should not be able to touch anything. <clears throat> then there's the, uh, you know, we, we bring them in for more situational based interview. And then you can assess, you know, give a packet capture. They know, you know, what's going on in it. Um, you know, if you gave them some some file structures, could they walk you through what, you know, what the, the parent-child relationships in it? Um, but that's, but even then, um, if they have a curiosity, if they have passion, if they can do problem solving, and they can do critical thinking, those are actually more important. Um, and you try to find that, you know, the people who are passionate about this and the people who want to learn because it's that learning mechanism that's a double-edged sword. The, the people who are passionate about this space and doing this space are going to want to learn more and do different things. And, you know, they're going to be a frontline analyst one day, but then they want to be a pen tester. They want to be an instant responder. They want to be, you know, application web testing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're going to follow their passions and, and you want them to, you want them to do it in your environment. But at the end of the day, you have to understand that that's true. A frontline analyst, folks, look, this is eight to 10 hours a day of staring at glass, looking at packet capture, file processes, I mean, a sim, and then think about it. So if I'm an analyst in an environment, I've got a sim, I got my network infrastructure, you know, my active directory, my asset database, my bone scan database, I got to know what my critical infrastructure is. Um, I have to, you know, if I've got, you know, third party involved, you know, I need to understand what they're providing. And at the end of the day, it's click, 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 click. I mean, it is data, 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 data. And it's usually hunting for data, doing triage before you can ever even make a decision, right? You think about that. Would you, I mean, it's literally, I would gouge out my eye with a spoon before I would spend, you know, two or three years, 10 hours a day of looking at packet capture, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's brutal. And so if you, if you got someone who's doing it well, you should expect them to burn out. Um, and so help them with a career path. Always be passionate. This is a leadership thing. Always be passionate about people's future. Um, you know, Richard Branson said it right. You know, you, you know, the things that you do for your customers are relevant. Do them for your employees and they'll, they'll do it for your customers, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you, if you take care of the people who are taking care of you, it, it, it breeds a culture of of success. And so help them think through their 
career, what they're interested in, help them map it out. But you, as a leader, also need a succession plan. Like, don't wait till a person comes down with COVID to figure out how I'm going to vet and replace that person. Uh, and then, and then, as you're there and you've hired the right person, I you know you hired the right person, and it's continuing to grow. And that's when you know um, external assessments come in handy. Um, you know, like I've I've been brought in to to evaluate staff. Um, I've 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 done third you know assessment of you know critical infrastructure and critical people playing a part in that infrastructure and doing assessments of. Do they know what they're talking about? Are they really, you know, and, and then providing some suggestions. So it's, if you're a finance person, a risk person, or, you know, you're a CISO, but you haven't really touched a keyboard in 10 years, then that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's true. You move up, um, you become less proficient at the tactical stuff. It's okay to ask for help. I mean, what's not okay is to not, or is to like walk through blissful ignorance until the worst day happens, right? So you're right. absolutely right. Training is a huge uh, challenge. Um, but the, but ensuring that not only do they get the training, is it, is it applicable? Did it stick? Are they continuing to grow? You know, I mean, as a consequence, it's, it's, it's a, it's a path like anything else. You, your business model grows, your people grow and, and your, your turnover will happen. So where is it, where are things going now with the, you know, ransomware, maze ransomware, the whole, you know, all the different threats that are out there and all the different devices that are connected to the network. What do you recommend people do when screening products that aren't necessarily network products, right? That your, your smart thermostats, your, your manufacturing machinery, those types of things. What are some of the things that they should look out for within those um, products and applications? Yeah. So, so, well, I, there's the macro level, which is just assume everything is, is compromised. Mm-hmm. It, bring your own device or distributed architecture. Just assume it's compromised, right? You have no ability. And, and COVID actually proved that to everyone painfully. You know, your employees went home. They started logging in on the VPN. If they logged in on the VPN, <clears throat> you sent them home. You have no idea what's running on their computer. You have no idea what their teenagers at home are doing on that same computer. I mean, you have no control over that environment. Um, you don't have any control of the cell phones, et cetera. Just assume they're dirty. So if I assume that all these vectors are coming in polluted, what do I do? Well, it's, they're architectural things you must do. Um, and these are, unfortunately, they haven't changed, right? Multi-factor authentication, right? The, the fact is, if, if everyone had multi-factor authentication, not all creative equal, but hell, I mean, at the end of the day, some multi-factor authentication, but everywhere. It doesn't do you any good to lock the front door if you left the back door wide open. Right. I mean, you know, so multi-factor authentication everywhere. Um, I'm a huge believer in zero trust methodologies. So, so we at PCMatic believe that application whitelisting is a predicate to a zero trust environment. Meaning, so when we look at the antivirus, you know, capabilities and what, and what secure, I mean, uh, what uh, PCMatic built 20 years ago was an application whitelist that said, um, deny all permit by exception. Like, we actually believe it's insane to just let anything run in your environment and hope you'll find it's bad, <clears throat> which is what a lot of our competition does, right? Um, we, we sacrifice convenience for security. Um, in today's environment, we take the opposite approach. Like if you don't know the provenance of that software or that process, why are you letting it run? I mean, like you can, you can approve it if it's legit, but if you don't know it's legit, why the heck are you letting it run in your environment to begin with, right? right. So, so that's a predicate. Um, and I say a predicate because zero trust architectures are really about user object permission schemas. And so, so we start with saying, look, lock down your application, lock down your software, lock down your environment. Don't let things run that shouldn't be running. Um, and then the next level of that is... Every time someone accesses data or data accesses data or a server accesses an endpoint, et cetera, or device, there should be an authentication that happens. There should be a multi-factor authentication for user object permission schemas. Um, it's difficult to do and not everything you know, is going to be as easy to implement, but at the end of the day, um, enter once access to all is a really stupid methodology. 
I mean, that's what we've been doing essentially for years, right? Yeah. I, mean, I log in, I got access to everything, right? So zero trust is, is more complicated. But at the end of the day, the, the, the things I would recommend are, you know, have you, have you done the basic blocking and tackle? You know, we're, we're, PC Matic, we're really big on basic blocking and tackle. Like, you know, I would love to say it's all advanced tradecraft. It's not. I left port 3389 open. You know, I use RDP all the time. I help my users. That's how my network admins do it. But they're leaving that stuff open when they're not logged in, right? The port's open. We'll close that down, right? So that's built in our software, right? Don't let applications run that aren't, in, that aren't the providence is not well known. Like we, we just say, don't do that. Okay, next step is my network architecture multi-factor authentication. Every, everything I've got to access, whether it be OWA, you know, um, whether it be um, my cloud infrastructure, whether it be my endpoint, whether it be through a VPN, it all gets multi-factor. And data should have to authenticate data. Server systems should have to authenticate to one another. So that's the, that's the schema. And then I would say micro-segmentation um, or segmentation at all. I cannot tell you how many times folks think they're, you know, something as basic as their active directory structure um, is configured correctly. And then you pressure test it and there's full trust across the networks. There's really no, you know, forest domain. I mean, it, it, it literally is just like full trust in the environment. There's no real segmentation. There's the illusion of segmentation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is there, are your admins, you know, controlled? Um, do you, do you, does every admin need to be an admin? Like, you know, who, do you know when a new admin account is created? Like, do you know when a new admin did something that was unusual? Um, you know, so at the end of the day, do I have visibility and do I have segmentation of my environment and my people's duties? Um, and are there controls and audit mechanisms for it? So, so at the end of the day, I'd love to say, oh yeah, the future is artificial intelligence. It's machine learning. Yeah. Guess what? There's a place for that. And there's a lot of software out there that's really cool, that's doing a lot of really cool things. But this isn't Skynet and the Terminator kicking our butts. This is people doing like, I my password is Bulldog One. You know, I mean, like my birthday. You know, yeah. my I don't I don't have a lockout threshold. I don't have multi-factor authentication. I just log in. I have multi-factor authentication in my office, but when I access my remote email, I just only have a single factor. I mean. You name it, and I wish I could say this is the future is going to be this revolutionary stuff, but crap, we're not even doing the basics correct still. Um, I, I laugh because here we are in 2020, halfway through 2020, going on 2021, and when you walk out on the RSA conference floor, of course, this year will be virtual, but when you, you walk out there, you see an entire industry that has monetized the failure of the very customer base that keeps them in existence. Is yeah. that not the biggest irony that, that's out there? It's almost a parody, right? Um, yeah. Like all these panaceas, all these silver bullets, and yet we're still getting thwacked. So at the end of the day, I am less concerned about, I, I think there's, the outlier will be architectural changes that obviate this. Um, like, like there will be an outlier that says, we're going to abs you know, reinvent how devices communicate. We're going to reinvent architecture. We'll, we'll have, you know, photon, uh, you know, broken encryption. I mean, you know, quantum computing. There'll be some kind of outlier. I'm, I'm right. pulling stuff out of my fourth point of contact. But <laughs> at the end of the day, there, there will be an outlier until the outlier, um, this, you know, it's the measure, countermeasure, measure, countermeasure. That count mouse game is going to continue. But if I'm on the Super Bowl and my third string is kicking the ass of my opponent, why would I waste my first string on that? Like, I'm not going to burn really good TTPs and malware and, 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 and exploit activity if I don't have to. Right. Like, if the, if the common stuff still works, if commoditized malware works every time and I'm making a fortune at it, boom. We will see the next, like, we went from banking Trojans to ransomware because we cut out all the middlemen. Like I didn't have to mule my money, right? And so mm -hmm. it, it was just a faster path to monetization. So when ransomware stops working because we fixed our stuff, then there'll be a next iteration, but it's still working for it. There's a reason ransomware is still kicking everyone's butt is because we're still not doing basic blocking and tackling and that's shameful. I couldn't have said it better myself. That's, oh, it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a really frustrating situation because all, all you want to do when you show up to work every day is do your job go home and spend time with the wife and the kids, 
not really worry about all of the the issues back at the office but these are these are things that follow you home and if you don't if you don't take the proper steps ahead of time you are going to have many many sleepless nights where you are kicking yourself in the ass for not not taking action sooner and there's a lot of solutions and a lot of companies out there that that are there and their sole purpose like you said is to help you you know with those basics and it's it's just up to you to decide what level of priority you're going to put on it in both of our opinions both terry and i's i'm safe to say that you know we we would put that pretty high up on on the list just functionally so that you're able to do what you do without any any uh, interruptions right so i wanted to i wanted to give you you know the time to kind of talk about PCmatic and what your your approach is as a as a company to to manage and assist customers in all of this. Yeah. So so if you uh, one of the things so Rob uh, let me back up. Rob Chang is the owner and founder of PCmatic um, and the current CEO and and Rob and I share a passion for t- protecting people um, and and Rob is very passionate about you know protecting our our municipalities, our school systems, our government agencies, because, you know, it, it's our collective, you know, as people and citizens of this country. Um, and when he uh, looked at creating an endpoint security program, he looked at it in the inverse of everyone else. And, you know, where everyone else was like literally running a blacklist, meaning I, I just let everything run. I try to find out what, yeah, I use heuristics or, or behavioral analysis to figure out what's bad. Um, Rob was like, well, that's silly. It should, you should know it's good before you allow it to run, right? And then you, then you approve it by exception after you vetted it, right? That's the more secure way to do it. And that's, that's kind of the approach he took. And, and then he layered on that. And it's like, this should be simple. It should be, I should be able to do this and do it simply. The reason that everyone has an allergic rational whitelisting today um, and oh, by the way, the terms whitelisting and blacklisting are going away. They're being replaced by um, allowed application lists and denied application lists because there's a lot of sensitivity about the, the, uh, the connotations around those words, whether um, that's um, relevant or not is, is, is not there. But uh, anyway, having said all that, um, if I am applying a whitelist application um, in, the, in the past, that whitelist had to be configured by the network administrator. Like what, what, is, what is legitimate in my environment? And if you've got a complex environment and you got a lot of distributed users, you have no idea. You have no idea what's on that environment. So, so you, impl- you, you come up with what you think is a good idea and all you know, the software on it, you, you put it and whoop, you've disconnected 20% of your critical systems and people. Um, whitelisting got like, like literally the Heisman from everyone in the security industry, you know, when it was first in, in, in instantiated because of that experience. So PC Maddox said, well, we'll do it from the global level. Like literally we have millions of customers. We know just by, and we, we don't take a single thread approach. You know, we look at hash values, we look at data providence, we look at, you know, digital signatures, we look at, you know, the prevalence in the market space. We, we look at all of the, the things around it when we do our triage and vetting. What processes does that call when it's launched? You know, we, we look at all of these things, but we've been building that for 15 years. So when you roll out PCmatic, you're not building your own. We already did it for you. Like we roll it out. And then if you do have bespoke software, Meaning it's you know you paid for it. It's unique to you. It's it's some kind of optometrist software, some medical files. I mean something unique that wouldn't be found in the wild all that much. Great. Um, you just allow it, and we have a, a local whitelist. We have a local blacklist. Um, all that is is easily terrible. We made it stupid simple. A toggle, click yes, it runs. You can do click yes, run here. Like I can do it at the, the enterprise level. I can do it at the group level. I can do it at the endpoint level. I just go hey, this is where I'm going to allow it at. Um, but we made it, made it really simple. Our GUI is stupid simple. We, you know, there's a belief that, you know, the best technology on the back end is useless if no one can figure it out on the front end, right? If your GUI sucks, no one's going to touch. I mean, it doesn't matter how good the tool is, how good the capability are, how awesome your machine learning is if the GUI sucks, right? I mean, if, if no one can use it or it takes in a, you know, a, an advanced threat hunter to be able to use your tool, 
you're probably not going to get the uptake that you think. So, so PC Matic starts with, is it only let what you know to be good run? Look at parent-child relationships. So, I mean, because even whitelisting software can be used maliciously, i.e. scripting like PowerShell, et cetera. So look at what launches as opposed to that. So you get a holistic view of it and then make it simple for people to implement. Make it stupid simple and make it easy to manage. And so, and then we built in the capability to access those endpoints and then monitor those endpoints. So I know what the RAM utilization is. I know what the CPU utilization is. If I've got a server that's maxing out every day on its cycles, am I, am I am an imminent failure just based on health? It has nothing to do with security, but I'm about to, to, to tip over my server, right? So we, we included all of that. And here's the other point. We did it at a price point that makes, it makes it no excuse. Like the, you, you don't need to spend millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars to go make something work in your environment. We will, you know, if 85% of what's attacking the, the internet is commoditized e-crime, why not get a really low cost preventative solution that you roll it out, you're done. Go worry about, you know, then you can worry about how I mitigate advanced trade craft and or mitigate it elsewhere or buy a security policy. But, but why spend a tremendous amount of money when you can get a very effective, simple solution that's low cost. And then the last part is, you know, we're the only um, security vendor out there product-wise that's making entirely in the U.S. We don't have any software developers in Romania, Poland, India, the U nowhere. It is all done within the United States. And that's not to be xenophobic, but we know the data provenance of our product. We know who built it. We know where it was built. We know where every step of that way, all of it's auditable. We have a clear line of sight to everything and everyone that produces our product. And we do it at a very low cost. So high security efficacy, low cost, and, and clean data providence of its construction. And we believe that's a super compelling argument. I absolutely agree. It's the, you know, for those, for those of you guys that don't know or, or don't kind of have this, have this background, very, very few tech products are built, designed, and manufactured entirely within the United States. And a lot of times on, on the podcast and throughout certain ep episodes, I've, I've mentioned the NDAA Act where they're banning Chinese equipment within um, government agencies and, and on government sites. And the reason is, is that it can be like Apple, for example, is an American brand, right? But Apple's chips that are inside of their, their phones are made in China and Taiwan, and they have different manufacturing partners throughout Asia where you can lose the chain of custody, so to speak, on where that, where that equipment is coming from and how well that, that equipment is made. And that's what causes these internal vulnerabilities that, you know, ultimately lead to products being banned or by or vulnerable um, because you just don't know. So when you find an American brand like a PC Matic or an Avigilon or, um, you know, any any number of the American made companies that are out there, it's it's important to pay a lot of attention to them because they they know exactly what you're dealing with day to day. They're not guessing from across the pond. They're, they're sharing the interaction with you and sharing their experiences. So it's, I highly encourage you guys, go ahead. Well, not only does it provide you a clean, I, I use the term data providence, meaning do I know where it came from? Um, that provides a, a very clean lineage. Um, but the people that are supporting you are right next to you. Like you don't have to, you're not out of phase. You're not uh, talking to someone in the middle of the night across the world. You're talking to someone right down the street from you who literally can turn around, you know, a bug fix, you know, probably why they're talking to you. I mean, at the end of the day, there's something to be said for, for having a, a homegrown product um, for responsiveness, familiarity, um, and just sort of, you know, knowing where it came from and, you know, you're contributing to our economy. Um, it doesn't go offshore to a global entity. It stays right here within the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Would you rather buy, buy your favorite pizza from the spot down the street or would you rather have it shipped to you from, from out of state? Yeah. Now, you raised a really good point. I'll, I'll finish with this. Like, and, and I'll be the first to say there's no such thing as a panacea in security. And anybody tells you they got the silver bullet, 
they're immediately lying to you. <clears throat> if an, and I used to work at a nation state agency you know, for the United States Intelligence Agency. I will tell you that if a nation state decides that they want to get in your environment, whether it be compromising chipsets, whether it be you know, done upstream, whether it be you know, in, infecting a, a vendor's patch management uh, in a software application that you know you, you, it happens way, way upstream. At the end of the day, if, if, if a nation state actor wants in your environment, they're gonna get in. Now, you, the question is, when can you detect it? What can you do about it? But my point is, um, there will always be an unknown factor that you must figure out how likely is that scenario? What's the, the potential impact of that scenario? And then do the calculus. Like if I'm running a mid-sized business or a small enterprise, do I really think the Russians or the Chinese, I mean, like if I, if I have something that's unique in the energy space or something, but, but generally speaking, if, if my business, I'm not gonna probably get a drive-by attack from the Russians, right? I mean, so at the end of the day, do I have to worry about super advanced trade craft and so I'm building a campaign against my organization? Well, only if I'm probably doing business with Target and I'm coming in through through the back door, right? But but you see my point. There is a calculus that you must, as a security professional, do that says I've exercised due diligence enough, and then for everything else that I can't categorize, I will try to put telemetry in place. I'll try to put early warning indicators in place, and I'll buy a security policy in case. But at least you've gone through the mental gymnastics to say. Here is my, my threat profile. Here's the box I'm putting around it. Here is the unknowns or the unaddressable. And then at least now I have a clear understanding of what it is that I'm, you know, I have a reasonable, suitable, acceptable, feasible solution for and that which I do not. Um, and then, so that, that's how you approach your security. Yeah. And, and, you know, on one final, final thing that you touched, that you touched on right now, what is the the they're not necessarily when you're when you're being hacked they're not necessarily looking for your information right it can also be your the customers that you serve you mentioned target which is what triggered triggered that in my mind um can you talk just real quickly on you know why why would a mom and pop shop get hacked if they have a big account that you know may be more interesting to yeah I'll give you an example. I'll use the, the target example because that's more well known. Okay. Um, you targets the, the, and, and target, let's not kid ourselves. Target had a financial and personal impact. Um, that breach cost people their jobs and it caused target big financial impact. And then one could argue the same was true for Equifax, but, but let's look, stick with target. And it was an HVAC vendor. If you'd gone to the vendor ahead of time that was supporting Target, I don't think anybody would have said that I, you know, I'm the, I'm the pastor. Like, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm an H, like I, I repair large systems, right? Um, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a point of sale, but well, maybe it's a little bit more easy with a point of sale. Let's just say I'm a logistics company and I, and I'm providing support to, to government entities. Um, at the end of the day, I make milk, I make cheese, I have credit card data, I have customer data. That's all sensitive to me, but no interest to a nation state. But if I'm doing business with the US government, then the information I have about the US government and how I supply them and to whom I supply and how I do it and my shipping, all of that information is now relevant to a nation state. And so I think when you look at the problem set, we as cyber defenders can't look at it from just our where we sit in our infrastructure, you absolutely have to say, who do I do business with? And am I a vector to them? I think, I think we owe it to the people we do business with to say, if, if someone is relying on my systems, my software, my people, am I exercising due diligence enough to ensure that I'm not becoming a, a serious threat? I mean, you can imagine what the threat might be to a US government agency if their logistics supply companies were you know, accessed by a, a, a foreign government, right? Yeah. <clears throat> it may not have anything to do with the logistics, it has everything to do with access control points, badging, um, how people are vetted, how people are allowed on installations. So, so if you looked at it from the lens of, of what an, an adversary views you as, um, it's you're much better off. Absolutely. Um, but Terry, thank you 
you know, for, for your time. This was, this was tremendous. And I, I loved every second of it because it's rare that you get the chance to talk shop with somebody that has that your level of expertise and experience. So thank you for, for that. And I appreciate you inviting me, Brian. I, 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 I think you guys are great, great partners. We love working with you. Um, and you know, we're here to support you just as much as, as you are to support us. And at the end of the day, I really, really enjoy speaking about these kind of things. So <clears throat> anytime. Um, and if your customers want to talk further, just let me know. Will do. And you know, you have an open invitation here. If there's anything you want to, you ever want to talk about. I appreciate it, brother. I'll invite you on to my podcast. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Take care, brother. Wow. That was awesome. I want to thank Terry for joining me. That was really cool. And I want to thank PC Matic for reaching out and helping me coordinate the interview. I want to also thank BTI Communications Group, who's been a tremendous partner in the podcast, but not just there. They've been a tremendous partner to me personally. They took a chance and invested in me. When I didn't have any knowledge in this, this, these areas, I was just hungry and willing to grind. I got some certifications. I taught myself a lot of, um, a lot of these things that we're, that we're talking about. And, you know, without them, I wouldn't be here, uh, where I am today. So I'm super grateful. Thank you, BTI. At the same time, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Leave us a comment on LinkedIn. Um, send us a direct message. Terry can be reached at linkedin.com slash Terry McGraw. I can be reached at linkedin.com slash Bryant Brackett. And we are here for you. This is, that is why we put this out. That's, you know, what we are about is giving you the information that you need to continue to do what you do best. So do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast, like the episode, and leave us a comment and have a great day.